Beloved in Christ our Lord, if you know me, you know that I'm not much of a sports guy. I'm more interested in reading than football. I'm more into hiking than basketball. And yet, there are a few things that I do know about sports, one of which is something called the home field advantage. This is something across all professional team sports, football, baseball, basketball, hockey. The team that's playing in their arena, on their home turf, with their fans filling their stands, the likelihood is that they'll win the game. Of course, there are other factors at play. The ability of the players, the the game plan of the coaches, but the home field advantage isn't nothing. It's an important factor in who wins. And why do I bring this up? Well, I bring this up because right now, as Christians, as the church, we don't have the home field advantage. As we live in this world, we have the away field disadvantage, if I can call it that. This world, though created by our God to be good, though there are remnants of that goodness left, this world, we must confess, is an evil place. Death, disease, Murder, abuse, war, religious persecution, the list could go on. It should be obvious to us that we do not have that home field advantage. Satan is the prince of this world, even though our God is king of the universe. God will ultimately have the victory, but right now, right now we are playing, we are living as the away team. And so we shouldn't be surprised at the scorn and the abuse The chants and the jeers that we hear from fans of the home team up in the stands. We should not be surprised that the world wants to dishearten us and discourage us. And so what do we do as the away team? What strategies should we employ? While learning from sports, the away team, they try to block out the jeers. They they try to focus only on the game. They focus on the fundamentals, be they dribbling, tackling, footwork, or stick handling. They focus on the fundamentals. They have their goal in mind. And one other thing. One other very important thing. Because as much as you, as you try to block out that discouragement and focus on something else, it's still going to come in. And so one more thing is absolutely necessary. It's the huddle. They might have the field and the stands, but in that huddle, when all the players gather up, They put their arms around each other. They get a pep talk from the coach for 30 seconds. That is all that exists. In that moment, it's not them versus me. It's them versus us. We are together. We need to encourage each other. We need to do more than just ignore their discouragement. We have to replace it with something. We have to replace it with confidence, with inspiration, with strength, and with encouragement. As the church, as believers in a hostile world, this right now is our huddle. We will win the victory, but the game isn't over yet. And so we must encourage one another. This morning we'll look at the encouragement that we want and then the encouragement that we need. The encouragement that we want. Now I must make two things very clear right off the bat. First of all, despite the introduction with the sports analogy, the Christian life isn't a game. Christianity isn't something fun 
We don't just play at being a Christian. It is serious business. And that's why in our reading, the Apostle Paul, along with other metaphors, he picks the metaphor of war. It's not a playing field, it's a battlefield, and we must fight. That's the first thing. And secondly, it's very tempting, especially for me as the one who wrote the sermon, to deal just with verse 11 in isolation, to look at it as simply one other, one another commandment. Encourage one another, build one another up just as you are doing. That would be so nice. It would be so easy. We could talk about encouragement, how it's important for us, how it's important that we use nice words instead of mean words, that we should learn to, different, to differentiate between encouragement and flattery. And these things are important, but it's so much more than that. Everything in Scripture must be examined in its context. And sometimes that context adds a little, other times the context is everything. And this is one of those times, this is one of those everything times. And we know this because of the first word of verse 11. The first word of verse 11, it, it doesn't start with the word encourage, but it starts with the word therefore. And this particular word, it ties the commandment to what came before. It was given to a particular congregation at a particular time in particular circumstances. However, we can be sure that it was also meant for us. Because this letter to the Thessalonians, it was not simply Paul writing as Paul, but he was writing as the inspired Apostle Paul. And he was writing this letter as a fundamental piece of Holy Scripture that has been preserved for our benefits and edification. So simply put, it was written to the Thessalonians, but it was written for us. Written to the Thessalonians, but written for us. So if it was written to the Thessalonians, what exactly was their need? What exactly was their concern at this time? Well, the need of the Thessalonians was threefold. Three parts to that. Firstly, they were undergoing persecution. Throughout the letter, there, there are clues and hints to this persecution. Paul preached the gospel in the midst of much conflict, chapter 2, verse 2. The church, they suffered from the Jews, chapter 2, verse 14, and elsewhere throughout the letter. Now, the exact nature of this persecution, it's not clear whether it was verbal abuse, financial persecution, maybe imprisonment, torture, execution, we don't know, but they were a persecuted church. And secondly, there had been deaths in the church. The church had members who had died, and it caused no small amount of grief in the church. And thirdly, they had been overrun with false teachers who taught many wrong things about the resurrection and about the return of Christ specifically. This is what had been going on in Thessalonica, and it wasn't pretty. And so what Paul does is he turns their eyes upwards with truth, with hope. Our hope in life and in death, the return of Christ. In every chapter, this is referenced at least once. In chapter 1, Paul encourages the church to wait for Jesus, who delivers us from wrath. In chapter 2, Paul reminds them of his love for them, and that he will boast in them before Jesus Christ at his second coming. In chapter 3, Paul encourages them that the Holy Spirit is sanctifying them to present them blameless at the coming of Christ. In chapter 4, we learn a few more details. 
Christ will come with the trumpet blast. We will be united with him and with all the saints in the air. And then in our reading in chapter 5 about the day of the Lord, look forward to Christ's return. This was Paul's message, chapter after chapter, hammering at home. This is fundamental. Look for Christ's return. The Thessalonians, they were a church undergoing a lot of stress. They were opposed and mocked. They had lost members due to sickness and disease. And they kept wondering, when is this going to be over? Does this sound familiar? In many ways, this church is just like Thessalonica. You have been opposed and mocked. You have lost loved ones, friends and family due to sickness and disease. And we want all of this to be over. And especially that last one. If we could just have a date. If we were told when things would go back to normal, when the pews would be full again, that would really help, we think. That would encourage me. Or if we could be given the date when Christ will return. Not just that this present crisis would be put in the past, but every challenge, every sorrow, every argument, every tear. When will all of this be behind me? If I just knew the day, it would strengthen me. And so we can understand the Thessalonian church. We can understand why they were so obsessed with finding this out. We can understand why they would listen to these false teachers who told them all about the return of Christ. And for us, even recently, I've had conversations with people who say, what do you think, pastor? It has to happen soon. Look at everything that's happening in the world. When do you think he's going to come back? And maybe you've asked similar questions of your pastor. The frustration is there. The longing is there. But if we knew the day and the hour, it wouldn't provide the comfort that we think it would because that's just not how it works. Let me explain. Of all the things about our future hope, the timing is the least important of all of them. The timing of Christ's return isn't the most important, but it's the least important. If I were to tell you that I received a vision last night that Christ was returning tomorrow, or next week, or five years from now, what would it change? We think that it would change everything, but really, if I told you that the day was tomorrow, what would you do? I've asked my catechism students this question too, putting them on the spot. They want to know, but then we go through it together, and they realize. If it was tomorrow, what would you do with your time today? Well, I would read my Bible, I would show more love, I would pray harder, I would evangelize more. If it was next week, what would you do with your time today? I would read my Bible, I would show more love, I would pray harder, I would evangelize more. And what should you be doing as Christians who don't know the day? We should be reading our Bible, showing love, praying harder, and evangelizing more. And now, all of this is just hypothetical. We think that we would do these things. We proclaim that this is what I would do. We think that knowledge of the day would spur us on to greater holiness. But in reality, I don't think it would. 
This isn't just my pessimistic view. This is actually recorded for us in Scripture. Because look at the Thessalonians. When the Thessalonian church listened to these false teachers who told them that Christ's return was any day now, what did they do? They stopped working. They laid down their tools. They sat around looking up at the sky. They stopped working because who cares about physical needs when Christ is going to return? They stopped resisting their sin because Christ is returning and He's going to make everything new tomorrow. So why would I try to resist today if I'm just going to fail anyways? They slowed down on their brotherly love and it may have stopped altogether if Paul hadn't written this letter. You see, knowing the day, it produces laziness, not holiness. Knowing the day produces selfishness, not encouragement. And this is why our God steadfastly refuses to tell us the day or the time. Matthew 24, no one knows the day or the moment, not the Son, not the angels, but only the Father. We are told in both Daniel and Revelation that the end will happen after a time, times, and half a time. It's specifically not clear. It's not clear because in our human weakness, we would turn this good news into bad living. Our God wants us to live holy lives, not sinful lives. God wants us to live loving lives, not selfish lives. God wants us to live simple and productive lives. And knowledge of the day would undermine each and every part of that. But here's the wonderful thing, beloved. Even though we don't have this encouragement, we do have something else. We have something better. God has given us the encouragement that we need. That's our second point. We don't have the encouragement that we want. We don't know the when. And that's hard. It is. It's hard for you. It's hard for me. I'll have you know that when I wrote this sermon a few months ago, I got stuck writing the first point because I was writing something that I knew was true. It is right there in Scripture. It must be true. But it was something that went against my personal opinion. It was something that went against my personal experience. Because I sinfully want to know too. I sinfully, desperately think that knowing would change things for the better with me. I'll be different. It will encourage me and it will strengthen me to know the date. Even if all the others fall away, even if all the others are made lazy and ineffective and selfish, not me, Lord. Tell me, I'll keep it a secret. But I'm no better. I know that deep down, what I think I know about that is wrong. What I think is wrong and what God says is right. And what does He say? How does He encourage us? How does He encourage us? Because even though the commandment is for us to encourage each other, we know that this, like every other commandment, it comes because God did it first. God loved, so we must love. God bore with us, we have to bear with each other. God showed hospitality to us, we have to show hospitality to each other. God forgave us, we have to forgive. And here God encourages us, so we must encourage. And how does He do this? Well, even though we don't know the when, we do know the what. And the what triumphs the when every day and twice on Sundays. So what exactly is the what? 
Well, it's proclaimed for us beautifully in 1 Thessalonians 4. Allow me to read a few verses with you from the end of the chapter. 1 Thessalonians 4, starting at verse 14. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 14. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. It's important, it's vital that we know the what. And it's too easy, it's so easy to go too far one way or the other way. Some people are obsessed with knowing the timing. They map it out on charts. They predict it with their clocks. And others say, well, you know what, I'm, I'm not a premillennial, I'm not a postmillennial, I'm not an amillennial. What I am is I'm panmillennial. I don't know anything other than that it will all pan out in the end. Now, very clever wordplay, but this is either intentionally or unintentionally denying yourself much-needed comfort and encouragement. God has revealed to us a lot about the end, and He's done so for a reason. Let's not ignore that revelation. As surely as Christ died on the cross and rose again, He will come back. The very end of the Bible reads this way, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all the saints. Amen. This is the end of the Bible. The very last words of God's revelation to us. The very last promise of the Bible is about Christ's return. So let's not ignore what he says about it. And what does he say? Well, we know that Christ will come. And it will be Christ himself, not Michael the archangel, not a messenger, but the man himself, our Lord himself, will descend. He will descend with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with a trumpet blast. Everyone on earth will hear this trumpet blast. Those in their graves, they will rise up and hear it. Those on the corners of the earth will hear it. Those in Antarctica and Australia and Europe and Africa. Those who are awake will hear it. Those who are sleeping will be woken up by this trumpet blast. And for unbelievers, this will be confusing. This will be terrifying. But for us, for those who know what it means, for those of us who have been listening and living for that trumpet blast, well, our joy will abound. And who? Who is this for? Well, the dead in Christ, they will rise first. Those who died in the Lord, they will not miss out on this amazing day. Their souls, having been rejoicing in heaven before the face of the Lord, their souls will return to their bodies. And in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, these bodies will be raised, new and incorruptible. And they will join us. And together, all the elect in Christ will join him in the air. And we will be with the Lord forever. We will be with the Lord forever.
We don't know the when. But who cares about the when? If we have to wait one day or 20 years, but this is what is waiting for us. Could you wait? Could you press on? This is what's waiting for us at the finish line. It's hard. But can we? And that last word there is important. Can we? Not just can I, not just can you, but can we? Because here we are, nearing the end of the sermon, we're finally getting around to how we can encourage one another. We are to encourage one another with these words. And we should take this both literally and figuratively. We should literally use these words when we're feeling hopeless, when we don't know if we can keep on going because of grief, because of guilt, because of sin, because of shame, read these words. Read them yourself. Have these words read to you and bask in them. Mark 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5 in your Bibles and read these words every day this week. Read these words from verse 16. The Lord himself will descend from heaven. It's true. He's not sending someone else to do it. He is coming down himself in his power and in his glory to look you in the eyes and say, Well done, my good and faithful servant. Ascend with me into my glory and be with me forever. Read the truth of verse 17. The dead in Christ will rise and we will be caught up together with them. It's true. Those who have died in the Lord are not lost. They are not lost to him. They are not lost to us. We will be reunited with them. Death has temporarily separated us from them, but death isn't permanent. What is permanent, what is forever, is our togetherness with them. And read the truth later on in verse 17. We will always be with the Lord. It's true. There will never be a moment when we are separated from Him. And this is true already now. But we are weak and we doubt. We don't feel Him always beside us. And so we cry out in fear. But the fears and the doubts, they will be taken away. And we will always know that we are always with Him. Encourage one another with these words. Literally, say these words to one another. Because these words, they provide real comfort, real encouragement, real strength. And compare that with the way that the world encourages. They say, it'll get better. Or I know what you're going through. And these encouragements, they can only go so far. And when things are relatively easy, when our discomforts and discouragements are relatively small, then we don't need a lot of comfort. We don't need a lot of encouragement, and so these cliches can work for us. It will get better. Okay. But when we're surrounded by death, when we feel as though we're being persecuted, when it becomes more and more obvious to us that we are the visiting team, that we are the away team, and we have that disadvantage of the jeering fans, it is then that we need real and true encouragement. It is then that we must turn to 1 Thessalonians and read these words. Now recently, I was reminded of the story of the four blind men encountering an elephant. You've probably heard this story before. 
there are these four blind men, and they encounter this elephant for the first time. One man, he, he puts his hand on the side of the elephant, and he declared, the elephant must be like a wall. Another, he grabbed the trunk, and he said, the elephant must be like a snake. A third grabbed hold of the tusk and said, the elephant is like a spear. And the fourth grabbed hold of the little tail and said, oh, it must be like a rope. And in this life, though Christ has revealed the truth to us, in our weakness, in our sin, in our grief, we can be blinded sometimes. We can be blinded to the whole picture. And so we must come together like these blind men. When all that I can see is the wall, we can think of that as the promise of Christ, you will have trouble in this life. When that's all that I can see, there's trouble, Christ has promised it, I guess this is my lot in life. When the, all that I can see is the wall, you must come alongside me and remind me of the trunk. Remind me of the tail, remind me of the tusk. And above all, remind me of Christ, who can see the whole story perfectly. Remind me of Christ, who can remind me of the whole elephant with all of its parts. We're not meant to be alone. We've been put together for a reason. We've been bound up together as the people of God. Now in Cloverdale, when I began this sermon series on the one another commandments, I started with a quotation. This quotation, the primary activity of the church is one anothering one another. The primary activity of the church is one anothering one another. And it's so true or at least it should be. Because on our own, when we don't do these things, we tend to flail around, wading through the depths of our inadequacies, confused and frightened by the challenges that surround us. But to encourage literally means to give courage. Encouragement, it doesn't just simply meet a need. Encouragement does not simply just make up for what we lack, but it does more than that. Encouragement is meant to fill us to overflowing. When we encourage, we do so to strengthen the heart. Not just because it's weak right now, but because it will be weak later. Now, one of you might ask, well, what's the point in being strong now if you're just going to be weak later? What's the point in strengthening someone who's just going to turn around and be frightened later? who's just going to be sad later. Well, it's for precisely that reason, because they will be sad later, because they will be frightened later. We must gather around the strong and the weak, those who are going through good times and bad times, and strengthen each other, encourage each other, make each other brave and strong for what is to come. Because, beloved, it's not easy right now, and it won't be easy later. So how practically can we do this? Well, there are three steps. Three steps for practically encouraging one another in this world. And note with me that even though the encouragement is for this world, these steps have nothing to do with this world. Instead, they have everything to do with Christ and His kingdom. These are the three steps. Step one, remind each other of our justification remind each other of our justification. When we're overwhelmed by our sins, 
when every day we think, I failed again, how could God actually love me? When all of this seems to be so hopeless, first of all, draw your attention, draw the attention of your brother, draw the eyes of your sister to the cross of Christ. Your sins, your debt, your rebellion has been paid in full. Beautiful words, paid in full. These are the words that have been stamped right next to your bill. These are the words that are written next to your name in the book of life. Your sins have been blotted out. And these three words, you could say three words written in red, three words written in the blood of Jesus Christ have been written in their place, paid in full. Remind each other of your justification. And step two, encourage each other in our sanctification. We have been declared righteous because of the cross. That part is over, but the battle isn't fully over yet. We still struggle, we still fail. And we're forgiven, but there's more to it than that. We're filled with the Holy Spirit, and He strengthens us in our Christian walk. We learn to say no to sin and yes to righteousness. This is the steps that sin uses, and this is our choices here. First of all, sin can suggest something to us, and we can resist or we can give in. And if we resist, then sin can fill us with desire, and we can resist or we can give in. Sin then encourages us to give in. We say yes or no. And if we say yes, then sin can make us act, and we've lost the battle. And it's easy to lose this battle on our own. But say it with me, think it with me, we aren't on our own. We aren't on our own, we've been put together, we've been bound together as the church. So use this gift, find an accountability partner, find a prayer partner. We should have these things in our church. If you don't have it officially, we just started it officially recently in Cloverdale. If you don't have it officially yet, start it unofficially. Accountability partners, we might think of them specifically for sexual sins, but really they're for any sin, they're for any walking in this sinful world. For gossip, anger, bitterness, any sin that you can think of, find someone. Have them encourage you in your walk of holiness. Encourage them back. And you don't have to go too far. Remember that you're surrounded by your spouse, your friends, your children. Encourage them. Be encouraged by them. That's step number two, sanctification. And step number three, glorification. Long for glorification together. Encourage one another with these words. Go to sleep dreaming of the new world. Wake up with ears alert for the sound of that trumpet. Talk passionately and often with each other about Christ's return. Don't be found sleeping to this amazing reality that is about to invade our own. But wake up. Wake up to the overwhelming, powerful weight of glory that is coming. Glorification. And this is how we should view these three things, not just as answers for catechism, not just as theological words, but they're very practical, very comforting words. Justification through the cross, sanctification through the Spirit, glorification on that day.
Beloved, do not be deceived. We are in a wicked world. We are in a world where those who are not for us are against us. There is no middle ground. In promoting sin and wickedness for decades, our government has set itself against the church. In glamorizing rebellion against God and His created order, society has become an enemy of the kingdom. We're not on the home field, and we're not playing, but we are fighting deep behind enemy lines. So join the huddle. Don't be embarrassed that you're discouraged at times. We all are. God knows this. That's why He has placed us together in the church. Don't separate yourself because you're not sure what you can give. Don't think that you don't belong because you're weak and sinful. Join the club. And literally, join the club. Join us. We all struggle. We're all discouraged and disheartened at times. We all need each other. We all need you. We are children of the light, children of the day. We were not destined for wrath, but for glory. And our Lord is coming. So encourage one another with these words. Amen.